0: again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs, and more importantly, I serve on the team of elders that leads the church. Today, we're in week seven of our series in the book of Romans called The Gospel is for Everyone. We're doing this alongside our sister church, our other every nation church in Austin called Mosaic. Last week, I uh, went home to visit my mom, took my son with me. It was not 100 degrees there, and I had a good time. <laughs> uh, sorry if if, you, uh, if you're just enduring the summer here. Get into some water, I guess, if this is one of your first summers in Texas. It's nice and hot, nice and warm here. Uh, I Last week, I listened to the sermon online. Pastor Shadrick came back to give a little homecoming sermon from... Romans chapter 3. Today, we're in Romans chapter 4. So if you could stand to your feet with me to honor God's Word. We're going to read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 4. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul, a former enemy of Christianity, now turned advocate. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word that is beyond our expectations or opinions. Lord, because of your gospel, we all have something substantive to boast about. But though though most of us here probably know you, many of us boast in the wrong thing. We're left depleted from your peace that you've designed for us because we're boasting in things that are not your gospel. There are other efforts outside of your gospel. And so we're left to carry these burdens around that are not from you. Life goals that we think we are supposed to strive for. And it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of this text So Lord, help us, help us to confront those parts of our soul that think we have to strive to prove something that your gospel has already performed for us. Amen. With our time today, I want to, first of all, teach one important thing, one important doctrine that our text covers that's all over these eight verses of Romans 4. Number two, I want to share how I came to really believe this doctrine and how it changed me years after already being a Christian. And then three, with the last little bit of our time, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with you to believe this doctrine and see the Holy Spirit help you apply it to your life and to your heart. I'm going to spend most of my time on this first aim, teaching the doctrine that's in this text, the main idea of this text, you could say that the sermon title is double imputation, double imputation. Now, imputation might not be a word that you use every day, probably every other day, right? Uh, the theologians in the last few hundred years call this doctrine dual imputation as well. But I thought I like double imp- imputation, which is more common. It also sounds more superhero-y, so double imputation it is. To impute is to simply assign value or to attribute. So double imputation means that not only is my sin imputed, assigned to, attributed to Jesus on the cross, but also his righteousness, the value of his life lived, which is a lot of value, is attributed to Imputed to me. My sin fully goes over to him and all of its consequences, infinitely. Wrap your head around that. Also, his value. The value of his indestructible life imputed to me. Double imputation. That's essentially the doctrine in a nutshell. But let me share share with you how this text teaches this doctrine. Verse 3 Paul says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham, he's the, essentially the, the father of Judaism. We know this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I like that joke because I didn't grow up with that churchy stuff, but I think it's a catchy song. Many sons had Father Abraham. What shall we say of this, Abraham? He believed God, verse 3, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You could say it was assigned to him, attributed to him, this righteousness. Because check out the original word of this, counted to him. It all comes from one Greek word in the original text, and that is logisomai. Logisomai is the Greek word that we render in English, counted to him, or King James, counted unto him. It's a word that means reckoned, marked, rendered, it's kind of like if your teacher marks you absent, but then for no reason marks you present in your class for no thing that you did, even though you weren't present. This is what this word means. It's imputed, attributed, counted. Verse, verse five, in fact, this, this word lojisomai is all over our text. It's like every other verse. I'll, I'll point out a few other places. Verse five, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just said in verse four that all of our work is not counted as righteousness, but it says here in verse five, faith is counted, rendered as righteousness. So wait a second. Is Paul saying here that Abraham wasn't righteous for doing righteous things. He wasn't righteous for for being a tither, which we know he was, for being a loving husband, which maybe he was, kind of wasn't too. Uh, Or did he do something epic with his life, which is kind of like the the modern-day millennial false gospel that we put these burdens on ourselves? No, none of those things. It's faith alone made this man, Abraham, righteous that's it. It seems overly simplistic until we continue to dig deeper and find and discover all that went into it on God's part. In fact, this same attribution of value is pointed out in David. Paul points out David in verse 6. It's another unrighteous man who was rendered righteous and Reckoned or or marked righteous by faith. Verse 6 Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. To be clear, this sort of counting, this sort of imputing, rendering, it's not fair. It's mercy, it's blessing. And blessing is at least assigned value from outside of your own earned value. That's just what it is. Verse 8, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So here's what's great about this. Not only does the Lord not count what we do deserve because of our sin, and we're going to discover more and more, why is it that he can't, he doesn't, count that to us? Where does it count to? Where is it sent to? We'll get to that. But not only is our sin not counted against us, but we have his life counted unto us. It's a blessing. It's something we don't earn. Even this word justifies in verse 2, how God justifies, or it says verse 5, justified. We are justified not by our works, this word in both of these scenarios that's rendered justify or justified, they also are a word that means counted or rendered. So all over our passage, God is calling that which is not as though it were. God is taking something, people that are unrighteous like Abraham, David, or you, or me, and saying, I count you, I render you, I transform you as something that you are not. I give you something you don't have. If you're a Christian, which which means you've placed your trust in Jesus and no longer in yourself or your highest sincerity of doing good, if you're a Christian, you placed your faith in Jesus, you are what the Bible calls righteous. But listen, our righteousness is not ours, it's counted ours. It's rendered or given, and it can only be received by faith. It's not earned. It's what one man calls alien imputed, which I love this because it makes me think of Spider-Man. Peter Parker became something categorically different than Peter Parker because an alien spider or something something like of the sort bit him, right? And he became transformed into... He was rendered something totally different. Spider-Man. Listen, he didn't train to become Spider-Man. He didn't work for that. Now, once he became Spider-Man, he had to work to sharpen this new identity, right? That's so much like our faith. We, We don't train to become Christians. We're rendered Christians. We're rendered from cursed to blessed. There's a lot that goes into this, that we need to slow down and allow to apply to our everyday lives. Lest we just walk around in futility. We were rendered righteous. Now, the analogy kind of breaks down because God didn't necessarily bite us with righteousness. But I could go there. I'll I'll go away from there, but... We continue to do our best to illustrate things like double imputation. We're illustrating the, in in essence, sometimes unillustratable, the incomparable beauty of this doctrine. I'll go another place. We are spiritually impoverished. We're impoverished. Now, if we think about poverty, it can help us to understand something like the gospel. Economic inequity and poverty in the world today, or really any generation, is significant. But even the worst crises don't begin to compare to how morally impoverished all of us are. We're born in sin, and we choose to sin. We add and multiply the impoverishment of our state to that. And think about that for a minute. And in our culture, um, I don't think anyone argue, would argue that everyone has the same, you know, opportunities, but at least it seems like we have some opportunities for lifting ourselves out of certain states of poverty. But imagine for a minute, we're so impoverished that there's nothing we could do to lift ourselves out of poverty. Go with me there for a second. And imagine, imagine a billionaire. We're just to, a billionaire were to just grab a boy out of the trash heap, as it were, and just transfer $100 million into this boy's account, right? She, the billionaire, imputes money into this account, money in a, in a, a, a new life, a new way of, of living that's completely foreign to how he lived in the trash heap. This is not a payment for wages earned. It's $100 million at this point is still superfluous. It's way beyond what we could ever think of a wage. But it's not, it's not a wage earned. It's an imputation. It's, it's value assigned from outside of the trash heap. It's assigned value that could never be earned. That's more like closer to what Jesus does in the gospel. We see stories like this in in real life. You know, Oprah, the Oprah show, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. What's that? That's that's assigning value. These people didn't pay for the car. That's what makes it so fun. Uh, Dwayne Wade, his foundation has lifted people out of relative poverty. LeBron James, literally hundreds of people and counting. Now, if you want some music to the story, one of my favorite stories of this sort of thing is from the musical Annie. In the most recent revival of uh, the, the musical Annie is you know with the, the J- Jamie fox is the billionaire he 's the kind of emotionally impenetrable guy, stoic man and, and very shrewd businessman who 's running for mayor, I think right correct me if i 'm wrong so he 's running for mayor in New York City, and uh, he by some means kind of runs across this little orphan Annie of course. I think modern PC, you're not supposed to say orphan. It's it's Annie who was in foster care, which doesn't kind of have the same ring to it, but she was in foster care, and he runs across her, and what turns into, from from a PR stunt, goes right to, like, real, true love. And the character who plays that Jamie Foxx plays ends up adopting her, bringing her into his home permanently. And so she goes from a hard-knock life to a baller life, because, because his value is assigned to her. She didn't earn any of this. This reminds me of First John 3. How great, and great is an understatement, is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. That we, who are not his children, contextually, we should be called sons and daughters of God. And so we are. So this word called means that which is not a son or a daughter is called to be a daughter. And all of a sudden we become a son or a daughter. Now I'm going to argue that this lavish love of the father in 1 John 3 is not what those previous examples were declaring. Because there's more that goes into it. See, all of those previous examples were not examples of double imputation, but single imputation. See, these people, whether it's Jamie Foxx or the others or Oprah, they essentially shared their wealth, but at no real personal detriment to their own state in life. Now, if Dwayne Wade or LeBron James or Jamie Foxx were to become impoverished, and truly trade places, it might be a little bit closer to what we see in the gospel. Double imputation. Paul is saying here in Romans 4, the endless riches in Christ's account is counted to you, not for wages earned, but by sheer grace, which you can only cling to by faith, and it's rendered to your account, it's transferred Value to you, not from you. And for us to understand this, we have to remember, if an infinite amount is transferred into our account, knowing what's in our account, as it were, that account first needs to be zeroed out. And an infinite debt that that we owe needs to be canceled first. We have a debt of sin and death Now, Paul mentions this wage. We don't earn righteousness through a wage of our own, but he clarifies what it is that we do earn with the wage of our life. Two chapters after this, he clarifies. This word wage comes back up again. He says, Romans 6.23, this is a really famous verse. I pray that our lives make it more famous, amen? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So God, what is God, a righteous and just God, who will by no means clear the guilty? What does he owe us for the wages earned in our life? For the sin, he owes us death. So adoption that we that John speaks of when how great and lavish this love the Father lavishes upon us. It's not just that he adopts orphans. He adopts his enemies. We are his enemies and we're spreading enmity in the world. And these are the people that Jesus, we are the people that Jesus comes and adopts as sons and daughters. Now, how can he do that? He can only impute his life and his value in us because he's, in cho- he's chosen to incur the imputation of our death and our unrighteousness in himself. Jesus chooses to take on our debt fully. Remember, Jesus lived a perfect life. So our imperfection is every bit as much alien to him as his perfection is alien to us. Double imputation. Now, probably my, one of my favorite verses about double imputation, this doctrine, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's double imputation. Now think back to Romans chapter 4, our main text. The only reason God could count us us righteous is because he first counted Jesus unrighteous on our behalf. Remember verse 8, "'Blessed is the man against whom he doesn't count his sins.'" Well, the reason he doesn't count our sins is because he attributes them to Jesus. He rendered to Jesus our unrighteousness and disobedience. And Jesus obediently bore that on the cross and paid the debt of wrath. Wrath that we were talking about a few weeks ago from Romans 1. Jesus took that wrath upon his shoulders. And there's just no religion or idea that even has any sort of thing like double imputation in it. Because it's such a glorious mystery. It's so rare. It's so unthinkable. And it's unique to our faith. Now, I remember 2011, I think it was. Barack Obama kind of, I can't do it, but I'm going to try. He walked up to that podium with his quintessential swagger. And I think he said something like, we got him. Something like that. After Osama bin Laden was taken. Uh, I think we know that Obama was able to see like a live stream of the SEAL teams going in to take bin Laden out. But imagine if that story went different for a second. Imagine if the story was the SEAL team captures bin Laden alive. They bring him alive, captive, back to the United States and try him in criminal court and render to him the verdict of guilty in the sentence of death. Now, go with me here. Imagine Barack Obama were to firstly issue a presidential pardon. Now, I understand a little bit about constitutional jurisdiction and you can't issue a pardon to a foreign terrorist. I, under, I understand that. But keep going with me. Imagine he were to issue a presidential pardon to bin Laden and he's forgiven but then Obama were to die and take that death sentence upon himself. That's getting closer to our doctrine of double imputation. And it might seem outrageous to you, like that's the most ridiculous and unrighteous and just makes me feel icky type of thing. But listen, this is, that doesn't even compare to what Jesus did for us. Because Jesus died for his enemies To make it a little bit closer, Obama would have to rise from the dead and send the Holy Spirit to Bin Laden. Jesus has done something for you and me that our minds are incapable of comprehending. And the best thing that we can do as human beings is to stand in awe and reverence of what he's done because it's beyond our ability to understand. Now, illustrations and analogies about this doctrine obviously are difficult because The work of God on our behalf for salvation is so glorious and incomparable. Nonetheless, I persist. One last attempt at an illustration. I think since the beginning of time, we've seen a metaphor for double imputation just written into human experience. And the metaphor is that of motherhood. Motherhood. A mother trades her freedom, relative freedom, her status, her convenience, often especially in our culture, her dreams and aspirations for the sake of her child. This is a beautiful picture of gospel sacrifice. Despite the growing controversy of saying things like this, such a state as motherhood, it's not forced on the woman by the helpless child. Motherhood is designed by God for human flourishing, and so side note church we 'll do well to honor mothers, especially single mothers, who bear this burden and show this piece of the gospel and not just uh, not just honor them but support them even at a financial detriment to ourselves amen but side note over mothers trade away their personal convenience and value in life in order to assign that particular value to the baby. They're imputed with pain so that they can impute new life to the child. One last verse that illustrates double imputation. My, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's from the Old Testament. It's Psalm 130, verses three through four. If you, O Lord were to mark iniquities, which means to count or render punishment for or impute the consequences of iniquities or sins, if you were to mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? Implied answer, no one. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, you would think that it would say there's forgiveness that you might be loved, but it says forgiveness that you may be feared, which means revered, reverenced. This should produce in us an overwhelming sense of awe. Let's dig into this for a second. Why is it that there can just be forgiveness with God? Is it that God just kind of like waves a magic wand over our penalty that we owe him? just says, okay, it's forgiven. It's, it's all good. No forgiveness for him means that that which we owe him, he takes upon himself. He forgives our debt. The guiltless one is rendered guilty so that the guilty ones can be rendered new life. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And yet he chose to die the death that we should have died. Our death was divinely imputed to him on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, his new life, his eternal life, is imputed to those who have faith in him. It's a complete transfer. So listen, if you're a Christian, you don't get a new start. You get a new life. It's his life. It's not your life. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is double imputation. This is, I count my old life dead. It's dead with Jesus on the cross. In this new life I live, it's not my life. It's not a new start. It's his life. And so fundamentally, if you're striving to be encouraged in this life that you now live, often you'll battle the, this idea that there are real and re- relevant things in your life that are kind of, you know, I, I want to be revelant, re- relevant in my culture and just kind of relate to people, and, and I've got financial struggles and relational struggles. Let me just encourage you that sometimes what seems less applicable is the most applicable. The best thing that you can do is to revere God and be mystified and in awe of what he's done for us. And all of our efforts to try to be relevant in the world often will fall short anyway. Would you rather be counted irrelevant by the world for revering God or counted by God to be irreverent for adoring or longing for worldly rever- relevance. Listen, even if we were to understand all the ways of God and understand why He does what He does in our lives, if we were to understand w- the right, excellent way of thinking about everything, it's nothing like us being able to simply revere and be in awe of the one who is long before my life, my culture. Jesus came to relate to us, to live a life that we haven't lived, to give us new life. Now, I want to, secondly, the last five or ten minutes, I want to I share how I came to believe this doctrine. And then why, why it is that I think it's so urgent for us to believe it. I came to know Jesus almost 22 years ago through a campus ministry. I had been a just normal kid, a a religious, perverted, self-righteous kid. And in a high school campus ministry, I was led to Jesus. The perverted, self-righteous thing, that's the me that Jesus rescued me from. And he made me new. And since that day, I've been in awe of him. I've been excited about Jesus. I've been excited about telling people about Jesus. I've always been passionate, but as much as I revered him, I also carried around a profound misunderstanding about this doctrine that would have proven fatal to my faith, if not at least to my calling to preach the gospel. See, I thought it was my job to essentially pay Jesus back. I thought I needed to prove to Jesus that I was worth the sacrifice that he made for having paid for my salvation. And so even as I pursued ministry opportunities in college and I participated in a Bible study and and then after college helped to plant a campus ministry that would be the seeds for this church, even then I walked around by feeling like this false burden that could have choked out my faith. And then in 2007, one of my mentors made me read a book by R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. Chosen by God. R.C. Sproul has since died, but I'm very grateful to God and to him for how God has transformed my life, even as I was considering some of the things he was writing about. Now, I'm not going to start a debate about predestination. If you want to do that, you can buy me lunch this week and we can debate about it. But I do want to ask a few questions. Number one, if you're a Christian, do you really believe that all of your sin and death was fully imputed to Jesus as he hung on the cross? Number two, do you really believe that all of his life, which he calls life more abundant, was imputed to you through faith in his resurrection? Now, if... Your answer to these two questions is yes. First of all, praise God, you're a Christian. But the main implication of this is you no longer work for salvation. And listen, you no longer work for success in life. Christians don't work for success. Christians work from success. Our life is not our life. Our life is not to do something epic with our life. Our life is to live out the life that he's given us because it's way more epic than what we could try to do for ourselves. I want to ask you another diagnostic question. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple and you preach the gospel. Maybe you're not up here with a microphone preaching to people in pews, but if you're a Christian, you proclaim the gospel. Why? As a disciple, do you preach the gospel to your friends? Primarily in order to accomplish something, like to lead them to Christ. Or primarily in order to honor the one who led you to himself. Now if you think this is just semantics, I'm pleading with you that it's very much not. The, the bitter fruit of my pre-2007 Christianity the striving, man-centered, try to prove something to God versus the peace, the fruit of joy that he's given me since are very different. Now I don't live to do anything as much as I live the life he's given me to enjoy his success because I am a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. I'm his so that I can proclaim the excellencies of him who's called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so finally, I want to plead with you to believe this. If there remains anyone here that still says, I don't know, I don't know if this applies totally to my my real struggles in life. I'm here to argue that even if you don't see the link of how this relates exactly to maybe something you've been worried about all week. Oftentimes, oftentimes what Jesus does is like a million layers above all of our concerns and worries so that it weighs down our anxieties. Remember, verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins, or you could say anxieties and concerns, are covered. Sometimes God doesn't want to just solve your problems right away, but he wants to cover you. He, he wants to give you faith to subjugate your problems, to bring them in, into slavery unto your joy. Faith is at least voluntarily counting or imputing or assigning the higher truths unto your lesser concerns. I saw this play out. This week at our summer nights, our first summer nights, we, we prepared for 20 or 30 people. 40-something folks showed up, and it was lively, and it was powerful. And I'm so delighted that the Holy Spirit always seem, seems to, to thread together messages from people who are praying together. So our Thaddeus and Jess, two other members of our elder team, taught about workplace ministry. And here, in, in essence, in a nutshell, what they said is, you can live to honor God not live to to try to to be something. You already are his disciple. So no matter what you do, you can do that to honor him. Not to try to do something epic, but because you are epic in Christ. And we live that out. We can have faith in Jesus that he's already done something so amazing that we weekly, we just empty ourselves from any other competing anxieties and we rest in him. All of our sin has already been attributed to him. All of his life is attributed to us. The challenge of faith, even as we come to church every week, is can we receive that and just let it displace any other worries or fears? Would you stand to your feet with me?